Uh, welcome. My name is Ben. I'm the teaching pastor here. I'm very glad you're here today. Especially glad if you're here in the room for the very first time. If that's you, special welcome to you. Um, so we're starting this new series. All right? It's called Building Blocks. I'll explain what, what the series is about, what the name means, and, and all that stuff here in a minute. But, but at first, I want to start a little bit old school together. All right? I want to start in the way that I think that every church and every pastor should start a sermon. Uh, which is today I want to start by having a little chat with you about Ikea. Uh, (laughs) That is what I'm going to do. Mostly because it ties into what we're talking about today, but also because I got some stuff to get off my chest with this place. So... Uh, So Allie and I, a lot of you know, we recently moved into a new home. We bought a couple pieces of furniture from Ikea. I don't know how you feel about this place. I have a love-hate relationship with Ikea. I love that their furniture is cheap. I hate everything else about it, all right? So I hate the way they name things. If you've ever bought furniture from there, you know they have these funky names. So it's annoying that like Allie's on the computer looking at bunk beds for the kids or whatever, and she's never like, hey, so are you thinking the loft bunk bed or the standard? Instead, she uses the names. So she's like, are you thinking the, you know, Dorftafartsen or the, <laughs> the Marshmallow or whatever they're called? This is annoying to me, all right? I also hate that Ikea ingeniously has tricked you and me into doing all of the work for them, all right? If you've been to Ikea, you know this. You walk in and you're like, I need a dresser. And they're like, uh, you need a Jorsenboxen. Um, but, you know, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna walk a thousand miles through our showroom, all right? You're gonna get lost. Then you have to go get all the individual pieces out of our nonsensical warehouse by yourself. No, we're not going to help you. You got to load it into the car. No, we're not going to help you. Then you got to take it home and you got to build the whole entire thing by yourself. They tricked us into doing all the work for them. You walk into an Ikea and there's one person there and they're like, enjoy your day and a half at Ikea. All right. I am the last employee you will see today. (laughs) And if there's anything we can do to help, please don't hesitate to do that stuff by yourself. So... (laughs) That's Ikea for you. So we, we buy a couple of these, these dressers, all right? And I've built enough of this Ikea furniture over the, over the years to have developed a couple rules, all right? There's a couple rules for building Ikea furniture, and they're rules that apply to life in general. All right, so the first rule when you're assembling Ikea furniture is you got to know what you're getting yourself into. You got to. You got to know what you're getting yourself into before you commit to the project. You got to pull those instructions out, get a good look at them, try to guess how long it's going to take you. You got to know what you're getting yourself into. The dressers I had were beasts. They took forever, but I forgot the first rule. And so I see the box and I'm like, this is an hour long project. No problem, right? I can do this between dinner and bedtime. No. If you've built a dresser from Ikea, this is a legit four to five hour long project that you're getting involved in. I don't know why I thought it would be different because everything Ikea takes longer than you expect. I think you could buy a wooden spoon from Ikea and they would send you a box with a log and a wood carving kit. (laughs) Like whittle your own spoon, whittle your sprunken. And so, (laughs) really going off on Ikea. uh, so I'm up until midnight building this, this dresser. I got instructions and tools and hardware like all over the floor, like I'm building a rocket or something. You know, I forgot the first rule. You got to know what you're getting yourself into. And the second rule for building Ikea furniture that applies to real life is you got to start off on the right foot. And that's so true. The first few steps to Ikea are critical, all right, because there's thousands of pieces everywhere. And if you don't read their weird, wordless cartoon instructions very closely, then you're going to use the wrong size screw or the piece of wood that has three holes in the top instead of four, and you won't realize you've screwed up until you're five hours into the thing. 
right? You'll go to put the drawers in, they're all upside down. And so at that, at that point, the only solution is you've got to take the whole thing apart and start over. I had to do that one time with a desk from Ikea. I'll never do it again because I learned you got to start off on the right foot. Ben, you have an unhealthy relationship with Ikea. I know, don't judge me, all right? Here's why I'm talking about it in the first place. It's because whether you're building Ikea furniture or you're building something complicated, you know, you're building your own bike, your motorcycle, or, or a computer, or you're building a house, those two rules, they still apply. You gotta know what you're getting yourself into, and you gotta start off on the right foot, right? You gotta zoom out and see the whole picture at large, and then zoom in at the first step and get off to a good start. And those two rules, they still apply, they're still wise, if we wanna get into this Jesus stuff. Right, this way of life called, called faith or Christianity, whatever you wanna call it, if we wanna follow Jesus, we should know what we're getting ourselves into and we should get started off on the right foot. Because as silly as it sounds at face value, starting a life with Jesus and building an Ikea dresser are very similar. I'll explain what I mean. Right, so if you don't know what you're getting yourself into when it comes to Jesus, you might trick yourself into thinking that you're an overnight project. It's supposed to be fixed immediately. When in reality, we are lifelong projects. This is a lifelong process. But how many of us thought that? Right? You know, you know, whether it was weeks ago or it was decades ago, we started following Jesus, and we thought that all of our addictions and our habits and our guilt and our shame and our baggage, they were going to disappear overnight, right? And so we get baptized, and we pop out, out of the water, and then we realize pretty quickly, like, I'm not completely fixed yet, and then we get disappointed. That's probably because we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, when it comes to following Jesus, you gotta start off on the right foot. The first steps are critical, all right? There's, there's just a couple things that you need to know about Jesus, like some building blocks for a really healthy relationship with him, and we should know those things on the front end, because if we learn them later, we're gonna have to do a lot of maintenance in our life, and I know that's our stories, because I have conversations with you out in the lobby or over a cup of coffee or in an email, so many conversations with you, they start out the same way, mine does too, where you say something like, you go, I used to go to church when I was a kid, or I grew up around religion, but I always thought, and then you fill in the blank. I always thought Jesus hated me for who I am. Or I always thought Jesus was you know, continually disappointed in me for not being absolutely perfect. Or I always thought Christians were snobby or hypocritical or lame. Right, then you stumbled in here for the first time for whatever reason, and you bumped into authentic and honest and vulnerable Christians, and you bumped into the real Jesus, who is so much better than the bad bag of Jesus you were sold back when you were a kid. And it's great, right? It's great, but it's kind of like taking the dresser apart and starting over from the beginning. That's my story, at least. It's gonna take me years of healing from the crappy version of Jesus that was shoved onto me in the past. Wouldn't it be great if we could just get started off on the right foot? And so that's what we're gonna do in this, this building block series. We're gonna know what we're getting ourselves into and we're gonna get started off on the right foot. And the reason we're gonna do that is because two weeks from now we have baptism weekend. And again, it's a party here. Like it's a big celebration. You don't wanna miss it, all right? But I was sitting around talking with the campus pastors about our series and our teaching. And we were like, well, why don't we spend a few weeks leading up to baptism weekend where we just take all the information out there about Jesus all the instructions and tools and hardware spread out all over the carpet, all the thousands of opinions written by thousands of authors on who Jesus is. Let's take all that information and boil it down to just the few essential building blocks that have to be in place if you wanna follow Jesus. And so for the next few weeks, we'll talk about that. 
We'll talk about like who is Jesus and what did he do for us and how do we start following Jesus and what can we expect from a life with Jesus. And here's why this applies to everyone in the room. All right, so if you're in here for the first time and you don't know anything about the Bible or Jesus, you're not sure what you think about this Christianity stuff, first of all, welcome. I'm glad you're here. You can always come here and figure this stuff out. Right? You can always belong here before you believe this stuff. But if that's you, you're in here for the first time, this series is great. All right? We're going to lay out the basics, and then you can make a decision for yourself. If you're in here and you believe this stuff, but you haven't been baptized yet, so you're pumped that baptism weekend is in two weeks, you can't wait. If that's you, the series is going to be great. We're going to know what you're getting yourself into. We're going to help you get started off on the right foot. And then if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you've been a Christian for 60 years, this series is still gonna be great because it's gonna breathe some fresh life and some fresh air into this with God life that we're living. Sometimes it's important to just go back and remember the basics, remember exactly what it is that we believe in. So that's what we're gonna do. And, and today we're gonna get started. We're get, gonna get started off on the right foot. All right, Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus is the cornerstone of our life. He's the most important building block in our life. And so today we're gonna tackle the question, who is Jesus and what did he do for us? And in the little bit of time that I have left with you, I'm gonna answer that question by telling you about the two most important moments in Jesus's life. I believe they are the two most important moments in all of human history. And if I could only share one thing for the rest of my life, it would be this. It would be the moment that Jesus dies on a cross, and it would be the moment that he came back to life. Just so you know what we're getting ourselves into today so that you have healthy expectations, the goal of today is simply to remember, or maybe even hear for the very first time, what Jesus has done for us, and then the goal is simply to be amazed by it and to be amazed by who he is. Right, the practical stuff, like what do I do with what I learned today? Seven days from now, we will talk about that, all right? That'll be next weekend. But today, we're just gonna take a look at Jesus and see if we can be amazed at who he is. That's gonna require a different headspace for us, though, than when we usually sit in these seats. You gotta use your imagination here. Right, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna help us with that. I'm gonna walk us through these two moments in Jesus' life, but I want us to be doing our best to put ourselves in those moments. We gotta remember this is not a fairy tale. This is not a storybook. This happened. It's a moment in history that happened. I want us to use our imaginations and put ourselves in those moments to think, what must this have been like? And so let's get started. See, I think, in my opinion, everything, almost everything you need to know about who Jesus is and what he has done for us, you can see in Jesus's famous last words. What I mean by that is the, the handful of stuff that Jesus said while he was dying on a cross 2,000 years ago. And so I wanna walk you through those things that he says. But again, I want you to be in the moment. And so to do that, let me give you some background. All right, how did Jesus wind up on a cross? And the biographies of Jesus in, in the Bible, they start with Jesus being born. He's born into this world. Most of us know the gist of that story, right? That's Christmas. It's coming up already, like it's right around the corner, right? And we know the gist of the story. There's a manger. There's a barn. There's a star. There's some people there, right? Like there's, you know, wise men and shepherds and Mary and Joseph. I'm, I think Mariah Carey was there <laughs> singing All I Want for Christmas is You over and over and over again. Um, so Jesus is, is born into the world, and it's this important, incredible moment that very few people understood at the time. It was this incredible moment when God came to live with us in this mysterious way that I don't have time to talk about today. Jesus is both totally, completely human, and he's also totally, completely God at the same time somehow. He is Jesus, the Son of God. 
And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God with skin on, enters into humanity to live with us. And from day one until the day he dies, his eyes are set on the cross. His sole and primary goal is to die for us. But it took him 33 years to get to a cross. That's a lot of time. So he grew up and he became a man and he followed in his father's footsteps, Joseph, he became a carpenter. And then around the age of 30, he became a traveling preacher, traveling teacher. And for the next three years, while he's traveling and teaching and preaching, Jesus says and does wild stuff. Right? He says wild stuff. He says that he has the, alone has the power to forgive people of their sins and put them into a relationship with God. He says he wants to bring heaven down into the real here and now. He says that God is his father, his dad. He's the son of God. He says wild stuff. It still sounds wild today. And it was blasphemous at the time. People didn't like what he was saying. He says wild stuff and then he does wild stuff. Still stuff that would be wild today. He miraculously heals people. He brings people back from the dead. He drives out demons. And so Jesus is saying and doing wild stuff. And Jesus quickly became and remains to this day the most divisive person to ever walk the planet. What I mean by that is you and I are forced to make a decision about whether or not we believe he is who he says he is. And that decision is dividing but when Jesus is, is walking around and he's teaching and preaching, he's actually so divisive that the Roman government, who had a military occupation of Jerusalem, the, the Roman government, they get nervous. You know, They go, what, what if this guy starts a, a revolution, a rebellion with the Jewish people? What if he topples our government? We need to take care of this. And so what do they do? They arrest Jesus, they put him through a rigged trial, they ring him up on false charges, and they torture him within an inch of his life. And then after that, they nail him to a cross. This is our background. All right, again, put yourself in this moment. We're at the cross now. All right, and, and from the outside looking in, there's nothing special about Jesus being crucified. All right, he's one in a million people to die on crosses by Rome at this time. We're about to learn that even on this day, Jesus is at least one of three people dying on crosses. He's just killed like every other common criminal. At face value, there is nothing special about Jesus dying on a cross. But in reality, something incredible is happening. And that's what we see in Jesus' famous last words. So what did he say first? Right, so you gotta remember, he's nailed to this chunk of wood. He's lifted up. He's slammed into a hole in the ground. He's hanging there right next to two common criminals. And as he's hanging there, this crowd starts to form and the crowd starts to riot. All right, they're, they're sneering at him. They're throwing stuff at him. They're making fun of him. They're, they're shouting sarcastic things at him. They're saying stuff like, hey, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, if you really are the son of God, why don't you just call dad up and have him save you? They're ridiculing him and humiliating him, and they're taking a lot of pleasure in killing Jesus. Again, Jesus was divisive, and these people hated him. And so the crowd is rioting, and in the midst of the chaos, Jesus speaks up for the first time since he's been hanging on this cross, and what he says sums everything up. He looks at the crowd that is rioting, the crowd that hates him, and he says, Father, God, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive these people. There are two crazy things happening when Jesus says that. The first crazy thing is that even at the height of Jesus' pain and suffering and humiliation, he is so focused. His eyes are on the goal, which is forgiveness. He wants to forgive his enemies. He wants to forgive you and me. He says, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't even matter what you do to me. I want you to be forgiven. 
Second thing is even crazier though. Because when Jesus asks God to forgive that crowd, he's asking for his own death. This is a message, it's the theme that runs through the whole entire Bible. It's this message that the only way for us to be forgiven so that we can be in a relationship with God again is if someone pays the necessary price for all of our sin and our guilt and our shame and our mistakes and our failures, you name it. And the necessary price is death, death forever. And so there are two options. Every single individual who has ever lived on this planet must pay that price for themselves, or there needs to be someone who is big enough and infinite enough to carry all of humanity's sin on its back, and the only person big enough and infinite enough to do that is God himself, and so he does. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, God with us. And so Jesus asks his father to forgive the crowd in front of him, but the only way that request is gonna be granted is if Jesus stays on that cross until he dies. And so he does. Until the very end, regardless of what it costs him, Jesus wants for you and me to be forgiven. Why does he want that so bad? Right? Well, what does, why is forgiveness good for us? What does this do for his people? What does it accomplish? Well, that's what he says next while he's hanging on the cross. Remember, put yourself in this moment. He's hanging there, there's two criminals there. One of the criminal turns to him and he speaks up and he says, hey Jesus, please remember me. Jesus, please don't forget me. Jesus, remember me when you become king. What this criminal does is he puts just a little bit of faith in Jesus. He believes he is who he says he is and he puts a little bit of faith in Jesus in the very last moments of his life. How does Jesus respond? And Jesus turns to him and he goes, I tell you the truth, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. Just a little bit of faith. What does forgiveness do for us? Well, first of all, it means that our life after we die is taken care of. If you put your faith in, in Jesus, the Bible says that we live in eternity with God after we die, in this place that has no more mourning, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. It'll be perfection. This is one of the reasons Jesus wants forgiveness for us so badly, because he cares about our life after we die. The other thing, though, that we see when, when Jesus looks at this criminal and he goes, today you're going to be with me in paradise, is this. We see that Jesus will forgive us even if putting just a little bit of faith in him is literally the last thing you do on this planet. And what that means is this. If there's anyone sitting in the room right now and you're going, you know, this Jesus stuff sounds good, like, but I'm too far gone. I'm sure it's great for everyone else, but not for me because I've done too many terrible things in my life and I'm a hopeless cause. If that's you, Jesus would say, if I'm willing to forgive the guy who's being executed as a criminal and forgive him when he has minutes to live, which means he doesn't have time to prove that he's really changed and to prove that he's a decent person or whatever the things are that we wrongly assume we have to prove to Jesus. Jesus would say, if I'm gonna forgive that guy, it's not too late for you. Jesus died to bring us forgiveness and that's not too late for you, I promise. So after this moment, Jesus looks at mom, Mary, and he looks at his dear friend, John, and he speaks up and he says to Mary, he says, dear woman, here is your son. And then he says to John, here is your mother. What's that about? Well, right after talking to the criminal about paradise, life after death, Jesus shows that he cares very much about your life before death because what Jesus is doing right now is he's just settling matters in the here and now. 
He's looking at mom and John. He's going, hey, mom, this is John. John, this is my mom. Mom, John is gonna take very good care of you after I die. This is the other reason Jesus wants forgiveness for us so badly. It's because he doesn't just care about where you go when you die. He cares about everything in your life before you die. He cares about your marriage and your kids and your friendships and your job and your joy and your real life in the here and now. And he knows that if any of these things are gonna get better in our lives, it's gonna be because we have a real relationship with God. If we're gonna have a real relationship with God, we need to be forgiven. If we're gonna be forgiven, Jesus needs to keep hanging on that cross until he dies. And so he does. Jesus wants to give us life after and life before death. So he says that, and then the end starts to near. All right, some people could be nailed to crosses and they would survive for days. It was excruciatingly painful. Jesus couldn't make it that long because of how severely and he was tortured and, and beaten before he was even nailed to the thing. And so life is starting to slip from him. And as it does, I want you to catch this because he says something that in my opinion is the most mysterious and powerful thing he's ever said in his lifetime. Life is, is slipping from him and then he shouts out in a loud voice and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's happening in this moment, this crazy moment, is that Jesus, who has never sinned, never done anything wrong, but even still, in this moment, suddenly and literally, he is carrying all of humanity's sin on his back. Everything you've ever done, everything I've ever done to bring shame and judgment on ourselves is now embodied in Jesus. And so because of that, Jesus, who spent an eternity in perfect relationship with God, he even calls him dad. He spent an eternity in perfect relationship with him, but now he's actually forsaken he is actually separated from God because he is actually carrying all the guilt and judgment that you and I deserved. In fact, this is about the only time in the Bible that I can think of where Jesus doesn't reference God as dad. He references him as my God. It's this distant, cold term. There's no relationship there right now because in this moment, God is not dad. God is judge. And he is carrying out the death penalty that you and I deserved. And so Jesus is alone for the first time and he shouts out, God, where are you? How many times have you prayed that prayer? I've prayed that prayer thousands of times. God, where are you? It's this moment right now is why I, I think that God is gracious towards any of us who feel distant from him or confused by him or we doubt him or we're angry with him. Any of us who say, God, where are you? because the cancer came back, or God, where are you? Because the depression and the family and the bills are just getting worse. I think he's patient with us when we shout out, God, where are you? Because somehow in the mystery of this Trinity thing, that is a prayer that God himself has prayed to himself before. We have a God who knows the feeling of forsakenness, which is our number one problem. And so Jesus is now carrying all of your and all of my deserved judgment. He's separated from God. He's damned for our sake. And so he says two things with his dying breaths. And the first thing he says is, it is finished. So in other words, everything that I came here to accomplish is finished. This plan that has been set in motion since the beginning of time, this rescue mission to save Ben and to save you and to save humanity is finished. It's done. There's nothing you can add to it. It's finished. 
And then the last thing he says is this. He says, Father, so not my God, but Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Jesus, just seconds after crying out, God, where are you? He puts his full trust on display. He's separated from God and he prays and he goes, hey, Dad, I don't even know if you can hear this right now but I'm about to take my last breath. And then what happens over the next three days is entirely up to you, because I will be dead. And so if I'm gonna come back to life, that is gonna be something that you have to do for me, and I trust that you're gonna do it. Father, Dad, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And then, Jesus, Son of God, God in the flesh, here with us, he dies. He does not pass out, he does not pretend. He died like a two-bit criminal. We killed God, we didn't even realize we did it. And still, 2,000 years later, we call that day Good Friday because on that day, he chose to make forgiveness possible for people like you and me. But then it didn't end there. Right? It doesn't end there. Those were Jesus' famous last words. But then three days later, Jesus takes his famous first breaths because three days later, God followed through on his promises. And he proved that everything that happened on the cross was real and it was forever and it's finished. And he proved that by bringing Jesus back to life. And this moment, which is the most important moment in human history, even if you don't believe that, in this moment that, that Christians have placed all of our faith and hope and trust in, this moment when Jesus comes back to life, it happened quietly. There was no one there to witness that exact moment. It was just a dead Jesus in a sealed up tomb and his father who kept all of his promises. So again, put yourself in that moment. Put yourself in that tomb. What must that have been like? What did it look like? What happens to a, a body when it decays for three days? What did it look like for all that decay to reverse itself and restore back to full health? And when Jesus' heart starts beating for the first time in three days, how long did it take for the color to flush back into his skin? Thing I can't stop thinking about is what it must have sounded like. Because there had to have been a break in the silence, right? Like for three days, the inside of this tomb is just eerily silent. There's nothing in there but a dead man. But then after three days of total silence, there had to have been this moment where the silence is broken and it had to have been broken by a sudden gasp for air. It's just silent and then... <sighs> Jesus' second first breaths air rushing through his nostrils and filling his lungs. It's life again and life forever. It had to have been totally silent, just death in a tomb. And then suddenly, and with that sound, everything changes. Your relationship with God, my relationship with God, God's relationship with his people, our eternities, our day-to-day -day realities, our faith, our religion, the course of human history, everything changed with those famous first breaths in a sealed up tomb. That is who Jesus is and that is what he's done for you. And when you put your faith in Jesus, it's a lot like that quiet moment in the silent tomb. It's how it happened for most of us. Right? Any of us who, who follow Jesus, you know, there wasn't, the, there wasn't an opening of the heavens and God audibly speaking and angels and trumpets and chariots, right? No, instead it was this quiet moment where things started clicking 
And Jesus started making sense. It was this moment when the silent, dead tombs of our hearts suddenly gasped for air at the thought of who Jesus was. And we started taking our second first breaths here. And ever since that moment, for some of us it's weeks, for others decades, Jesus has been breathing life into the dead tombs of our hearts. That's because that is who Jesus is and that is what he does for us. And whether you are in this room for the first time or the thousandth time, we are all in desperate need of that breath of new life that Jesus gives us. You know, for some of us it feels like life is just holding us underwater, I get that feeling. Right, we're dying to catch a breath. We're dying to just pop out of the surface and gasp for air. We still haven't found what we're looking for. What we're looking for is Jesus. And he gives you that breath of new life. For some of us, the overwhelming pressure of our careers or the, the stress at home or the compounding medical bills, it's suffocating us. We're dying to catch a breath. We still haven't found what we're looking for. What we're looking for is Jesus. And he gives us that new breath of new life. And then for others of us, and we can't even believe right now that this is gonna happen, but it's gonna happen. For others of us, two weeks from now, we will find ourselves fully clothed, standing in a hot tub here, and we're gonna get baptized, and we'll go under that water, and when you come out of that water, you will be taking your second first breaths in this life, and you will have found what you've been looking for. Don't have to understand it. No one's gonna understand it completely. Just gotta believe it. And so here's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna sit in awe of that. All right, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna sing this song, and the song is all about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and the song is all about Jesus' second first breaths. And what we're gonna do is we're just gonna sing that song, we're gonna tell him thank you. All right, well, you know, but what do we do? Practically, what do we do? That's next week, all right? For now, we're just gonna be amazed at who he is, because that's always the first building block for following someone. You gotta know who they are and be amazed by them. And so for the next few minutes, we're gonna sing this song and be amazed by him and carry that throughout the week. All right, pray with me. All right, God, some of us never knew and then others of us forgot. But God, anytime that we say we're dying over here, you look at us and you go, not with me or not, and that's because I put death to death, and that's because I bring dead things back to life. That's because I take the empty, silent tombs of your hearts, and I breathe life into them. God, what I'm asking for right now, whether we've, we're in here for the first time, and this is the first time we've heard it, or we're in here for the thousandth time, and we already know the gist of the story, God, can you do something powerful in our hearts and in our lives, and move us, and help us to, to capture the reality of what you have done for us, because it's amazing. God, you looked at humanity. You looked at men and women like us and we're out here floundering on our own and you said, I'll pay that price for you. God, we thank you so much for that. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who chose that for us, who walked this 33 years of life on this planet with the sole purpose of being hung on that cross for me and for you. God, we thank you so much for who Jesus is. Right now, we're just gonna celebrate him. We're gonna tell you thank, thank you, and we're just gonna be amazed at how wonderful you are. God, we thank you for how wonderful you are. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, who makes this possible for us, and it's in his holy name that I pray. Amen.